Namo tassa pakavartu arahantu asamma samputassa Namo tassa pakavartu arahantu asamma samputassa Namo tassa pakavartu arahantu asamma samputassa Uttang dhammang sankhang namasami I can see my voice. There's a graphic of my voice here. I have a pretty voice, don't I? <laughs> so nice to be with you again. I've been, uh, I've had a very uh, rich and rewarding couple of months now. I live a very interesting life. Uh, I was in British Columbia. We had a, a meeting of our senior monks. We have several monasteries now in North America, and. The, starting to meet together and just talk about our <clears throat> where we're going, how we're doing. That's very rewarding, being with monks that I've known for 40 years or 30 years or 20 years. It's very, uh, we have these really uh, interesting and, and profound friendships because we've been doing this work together for a long time and uh, we've stuck with it and we've worked quite hard really to create these monasteries. So Ajahn Pumidhammo and Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Sona and all these big, big friends. And then I was in um, Cortez Island at teaching in Cortez Island. I always wanted to go there and I wasn't disappointed. Although it was called Desolation Sound, I didn't find it desolate. <laughs> and then we did, I sort of taught there and stayed with some friends and then uh, a kayaking retreat in Desolation Sound. You want to sign up? Join. <laughs> 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 Kayaking retreat for with ten of us, which was really lovely for a few days, and then I was teaching in Victoria. I'd never been to Victoria, a beautiful town. And then I went down to California, and we had the opening of uh, Ajahn of Abayagiri. We have a monastery in Northern California called Abayagiri. And uh, we had the opening of a building they've been constructing for five years now. Very complex building, very beautiful Dharma Hall. And we were, I think, 44 monks. And uh, I think 38 of us were from non-Buddhist backgrounds, originally, like, born. And that, you know, for me, of course, that's very inspiring that you have this very kind of orthodox tradition of monasticism has, uh, has a usefulness or a, a life in, in North America. Because I, when, I, when I went to England as a young monk, I, I really just wanted to go back to Thailand. I really wasn't uh, interested in... I'm not a proselytizing kind of guy. You know, I'd much rather just be in a workshop. <laughs> but my teacher asked me to go, and so then and we went and we said, how are we going to do this in London? And then we asked Ajahn Chah, he said, two things happened. Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedha said, are you sure we can do this in England? <laughs> you know, in this tradition, we have no money, and you're just a kind of a beggar, and we wear funny clothes, and so on. And, and Ajahn Chah said, well, are there generous people in England? I just said, well, of course there are. He said, it'll work. 
And then he asked him, so how am I going to do it? He said, make a good soup, and they'll come. <laughs> so that was the sort of instructions we got. But, uh, so for me, it's a, you know, my whole life has been spent in trying to create sanctuaries and places of refuge for people and offer some teaching. And so it's uh, obviously rewarding for me to see it works, you know, that it has, it has an effect. There's many ways to do Buddhism, and this is the way I chose. It kind of works for me, and so that's what I share. Uh, so that was lovely, just a lovely gathering. Uh, and then Jerry Saro was there, and Rompa It was a kind of all-star Buddhist team. That was great. And then I came back, and I have a friend of the monastery, and she's dying. And she was in her last... She was in the last, when I came back, she was in the last five days of her life, and she said she was kind of waiting for me to, to say goodbye. I, I actually didn't think I'd get back. I had these previous appointments, and so I ended up doing a vigil with her and her family for a week, and then she died three days ago. So that was a contrasting experience of being in Desolation Sound, and Oh, and happy people kayaking and sunshine and swimming in the cold waters and looking at eagles and we didn't sing kumbaya almost we didn't quite get there and then and then someone has cancer and they're, and they're in their last hours and you know, they're, you know, the, the profundity of that very, very profound isn't it when you watch when you're with someone in their family that is into the last days of their life. It's a very powerful, powerful experience. And I, I get asked that these days, not every day, but once a year or maybe twice a year, someone comes to me kind of saying, how do I do dying? It's, it's sort of, I guess, a question that maybe I was trained for, not that I've died yet, and not that I can remember God, but people sort of trust. And, and so I, I was saying to Andre, I was saying like, just exploring uh, what I often do with people, if they ask me if they're very ill and, and they're in a kind of palliative care eternal situation, I, one, of, one of the questions I ask them, do you think that consciousness uh, ends with the death of the body. That's my, my basic question. Consciousness is a, a physical phenomenon. And I found very few people, I don't know anyone who said yes. I have found some, yes. They'll, they'll say, yes, it's, it's just brain matter and then schluss. That's finished. But intuitively, most of us, I think, have a sense, and I don't think it comes from ego, that consciousness is not just the body. Now, I can't prove this. I don't know about you, but I think it's an important question. Sometimes we, we, we don't put it so boldly, so we might have a, a, a theological kind of memory system of, from Christianity, or we might have quasi-Buddhist, Hindu, yogi kind of beliefs. And they can be couched in terms of rebirth and karma and, and so on. But I find just that very 
that very straightforward question of, do I think consciousness ends with the body? And I don't. I don't, I don't feel that's true. So that's my working hypothesis, and it happens to be <laughs> Buddhist teachings too. That's handy. <laughs> it was, I've got it back in here. So then, what is, you know, how, how do we, you don't mind if I do this, huh? Shall we die? <laughs> will we die? We will, we will die. The body will die, but who will die? What will die? So, just you know, talking to people, I, I often ask them, so how have you lived your life? You know, because your dying is going to be somewhat reflective of how you live. And, and, and this person, she's lived a really, really skillful life, very generous woman, very kind. Um, I don't think their family would mind me mentioning, but she fostered 13 kids, as well as running a business and um, doing all kinds of things. It's a real kind of bodhisattva heart. So that's obviously going to affect the way we die. No regret, no remorse, because a life well lived is not filled with remorse. Actually, she was incredibly grateful. Just this, this kind of lovely gratitude is constantly flowing out of her. So if we're going to contemplate how we're going to do dying, then how do we do living? Right? How do we do living? Because it's not going to, it's not going to change all that much. Uh, and then, then you come to the Buddhist teachings on how to live life. And, and you know, the basic thing that we get all the time is goodwill, isn't it? We're just reading something from uh, on anger in the monastery, and you just in Buddhism you cannot justify anger. You can be angry, you know, you can be angry. That's fine, that's normal. But justifying it, thinking it's someone else's fault, and the image you have in the, in the text is. Poof. It says, like, if someone comes up to you, if two guys come up to you and start sawing you in half, and you are entertaining anger at them, you haven't sussed out what I'm talking about. Oh, I mean, I get angry at the deer fly. <laughs> and, and so it's like the, the, the standard of Buddhism is, is uh, for self-responsibility um, is very, very high. It's very, very high. And, and, and the, the empathy... Uh, emphasis is on goodwill, and goodwill is, is just this basic attitude of not, it's the opposite of ill will, isn't it? That I, I, I'm going to try to live this life in, in, in a sense of generosity and compassion as much as possible. And, and the, the greatest form of generosity, we would say in Buddhism, is what we call the Mahadana, and that is a kind of Sajin Jai Sarah was kind of explaining this in a lovely way. It's the kind of contract we make with the world and with other beings or with our families. And the contract is that I promise you that even though I might dislike you, even though you get out my nose sometimes, uh, even though I wish you wouldn't do whatever you do, I promise you I will not hurt you. I will not abuse you. I will not kill you. I will not abuse you verbally or physically or psychologically. I promise you that. I promise I'm going to do that. And so the text, the way it reads is that 
by making that promise of nonviolence, I give that I give to that person freedom from fear. And that's a that's a huge gift, isn't it? That's the first precept, isn't it? Nonviolence. I give to you the gift of freedom from fear. I might not like you, and I might even get angry sometimes, but I promise you, I will not. I make a promise to you. And it's a gift. It's a gift of fearlessness. And then I promise you that even though I really like your iPad, and I, you know, I'm a pretty clever accountant, and I could fudge the books and steal all your money, I promise you I will not take that which not, does not belong to me. I give you that. I promise you I will not take your goods. I will not take that which doesn't belong to you. And I give you the freedom from fear. I want, there was once a, a, I was once on a retreat. It only happened once in like 40 plus years where someone lost their wallet in a, in a retreat center. Someone nicked the wallet. We weren't sure where it went. And the, the tone of the monastery just changed. Everyone locked their doors. And there was fear of being robbed. Huh? That's rare, isn't it? I mean, retreats are just such safe places, monasteries. So I give you, I give you this, I give you this fearlessness. Um, in, in, and so in terms of relationships, if I'm, if I'm in a stable relationship, I promise you, even though I find other people attractive, and you look really ugly this morning, <laughs> I promise you that I will not step out of this relationship. I give you that. I promise you that. No matter how I feel about you or what I feel about someone else. I give you the gift of fearlessness. And I promise you that even though I feel embarrassed about some of the stuff I get up to, I will not lie to you. I won't tell mistruths to you. I promise you that. I make a contract with you. The freedom from fear. And then the last one is, uh, I promise you that I'm not going to get drunk and stoned where all of these promises then fall away. I'm going to be sober and straight so that I can keep all those promises. And that, that we, that's a kind of, it's an interesting way to look at morality because it's not, it's not like crime and punishment. It's not coming from that. It's coming from this sense of goodwill that my activity, you know, my, my relationship to you and my commitment to you is serious. It's not frivolous. It's not something that I take lightly. Uh, imagine if the world did that, huh? Imagine. But I can do that. Maybe other people, I can do that. Certainly that's the way my monastery works. It's a very strong contract of goodwill. And it's not, you know, we don't have a kind of police force that checks, checks out monks or you know, stealing chocolate bars from the lard or something like that. You know, it's, it's an honor system. It works. It works really, really well. So that's one of the sort of basic factors of a good dad. Isn't it? Because if, I, if I've exploited others or I've, I've mistreated them, or surely that's going to come up. You know, that's what I'm going to have to battle with, those kinds of regrets and remorses. So that kind of sense of my life is, my life is not my own, you know. I just, I just can't do what I want to do. I have to relate with you. And that brings a lot of beauty, uh, integrity, and, and honor.
And then just goodwill itself, like this past there's so much goodwill that I experience now. Uh, yet when I was living a rather unsalubrious life before I became a monk, you know, that, 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 that there wasn't that much goodwill. There was a little confusion and so on. But now, uh, the whole ethos is like, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I take care of you? And that, that energy then of compassion uh, which this friend exhibited so strongly, comes out in the dying days as a sense of no regrets, no remorse, a positive, beautiful attitude. And, and, and you know, before we even start meditating, the Buddha talks about that. He talks about like deep compassion and deep caring. So when, when, when I was talking with this friend, I said, so... If, if the body's going to die and the senses are going to fall apart, well, you know, what, is there anything that endures? And, and we kind of talked back and forth, and I suggested, well, it, what do you think about this sense of presence? So I asked you in meditation, I said, can't we, uh, like, listen to the sound of the fan, right? And then I threw your hands. And what was what was what endured in the changing nature of that experience to me was the knowing, the sense of presence, which you can't you can't identify as an object. And I often talk about that, don't I? But surely that must be the method of dying. No, just be aware. And what else can you do? Take chemo. Okay. Uh, personally, I think I'm old enough to die. So. <laughs> So you can make choices like that, right? things like that, taking medicine and so on. But what you know? What are we going to take as the as? And what can we give to people when they are dying too? That's an interesting one. You know, to be to be with someone that's dying, and to have the sense of presence that this is okay. You know, the dying is okay. I mean, how could it not be okay, right? With birth, there's death, obviously. With beginnings, there are endings. With, with, uh, with togetherness, there is separation. This is the law. This is a natural law. And awareness, awareness doesn't demand anything. It doesn't demand any kind of eternal existence or being together or being apart. It knows, it knows, it knows. And surely that must be the most important part of this process of living and dying. It's not different, really. So that when, when, uh, when, like I'm, I'm called upon to, to be with people sometimes, not that often, in kind of palliative situations, and I can see how just like chanting, like like this, we, we were doing chanting maybe every few hours. Myself and Venerable Amasi would just do the chanting that we do, and how that would really calm the mind. You know, really, really bring the mind to a sense of calm. Now, if you don't have a, if you don't have a tradition of of somehow music, whatever, uh, we have strong traditions around chanting. Uh, sometimes you don't have the tools to to deal with a situation that is not. You can't you can't use intellect now. You know, someone is dying. You can't say to them, "Well, just let go," because they're confused. But if you have some kind of ritual, some kind of spiritual ritual, from yoga, from 
Christianity, from Buddhism, whatever, that you've done a lot, you know, chanting, that you've done a lot, which is not just intellect, it's not just thinking, and it's not just watching the breath. And like, like watching your breath when you're dying is probably pretty, pretty difficult because it's stopping. <laughs> it's not good. But like something like chanting and, 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 a, and a history of, of some kind of spiritual form. Is, our cultures don't have this anymore. We've sort of thrown them out. I've stuck with it, kind of. But that has a powerful effect. Very, very powerful. But you can't play hip-hop when someone's dying, right? No, maybe you can't. I don't know. So I just found, like, this, this, this friend of mine, she's playing the Gordon Chants, and uh, our, our champion, and so on. So there's a way of touching peace, which we all know, I think. We all know. Uh, and there are these different ways that cultures have developed it. How do you do that in a secular culture? I don't know. I suggest to people, yeah, just learn some chanting. It's good stuff. Nice to do. So, um, is is you know is dying any different than living? Really, it's not. It's not. It's different in 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 the ten, in the sense of its intensity. Surely, the way we live is the way we die. And then what happens afterwards? Who knows? I mean, I know, I know theories. I, I picked his brain and said, what happens to consciousness? And we, we both agreed that we didn't know. <laughs> and we had some, we don't know. We don't know that. And the unknown might be frightening. But we know that we, you know, you can know that you don't know. You can know that you have fear, right? Because that knowing isn't like a, a conclusion. It's a space. It's more like a space, isn't it? Like a space that contains and knows the way things are. So if you trust it, if, if you have... Well, I remember my neighbor actually just came to me. When, when I was living in Toronto as a kid, the neighbor was a strong, very, very strong Catholic Polish lady. And she was, she, she, she was suffering from cancer. And her faith fell away. Her belief system fell away. Her belief in Jesus. This kind of a structure that had been holding. And all of a sudden it fell away. And she was... She was in real trouble. Now the beauty of it, but awareness, it's not a belief. You know, whether you believe in consciousness after death or whatever, but awareness isn't like an intellectual Buddhist doctrine. Because knowing is not, it's not cultural, it's not Buddhist, it's not Christian, it's, it's human. Maybe it's pain, maybe it's something like that. But it's always there, isn't it? And, 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 and that's, I think, what we can't trust, I would say. That's what we can't trust. So the more we, we, we cultivate um, awareness in different formats, and, and, and this is what we're doing in meditation. You know, Ajahn Chah would say that, you know, learn to die before you die. It sounds very morbid, doesn't it, today? <laughs> but, but it's a serious topic. You know, it's, quite, it's, not, it's not really frivolous. But, you know, when, when we sit here and meditate, and you just learn to bring your, your, your attention back to the present moment, that is a preparation for death. Because you're, you're composed, and you understand what composure is. You're present, you understand what presence is. So that when, when whatever processes come when you die, if there's fear, you know fear. If, they're, you know, if you're angry at the nurse for poking you or something, you know that too. And, and so you have a refuge. You, know, you have a real refuge in, in, in that way. The, the, 
the kind of what I was saying in this meditation that the kind of central I would say the, the central themes of Buddhism are to understand life and to make intentions from that understanding if you don't understand life uh, and you make intentions from a misunderstanding then you're going to muck it up right so what do you really want to understand is what takes you to peace and what takes you to confusion. And what takes us a lot to confusion is ruminating ruminations. How's that? I'm just reading a book called Selfie. Very, very good book. It's not just about, you know, I've never taken a selfie in my whole life. It's pretty good. It's not about that, it's about narcissism in our society and the kind of endless self-preoccupations that our society is now uh, caught up into. And anyway, but one of, the, one of the difficulties we have as meditators and contemplatives is this constant rumination. Thinking about thinking and then you're thinking about the past and thinking about whether you should be thinking or... It's just like ad nauseum, isn't it? We were both talking about that, and when is it going to be quiet? Can't it just be quiet? And the quietness is so lovely. So the kind of paramount understanding, I think, in Buddhism is to really begin to touch reality uh, before you, uh, outside of thinking, say. So when, you know, like if you're ruminating on what you're going to do next week, or then just that habitual thinking, you can just touch an object like this chair, Feel the hardness of that, and your mind will stop. Or now, obviously, if you if you've just been beaten up, and and, and so on, so your mind's just going to be running with some trauma. Yeah, but in the kind of ordinariness of life, you can break into the endless ruminations by just being present. It's ordinary, isn't it? Very simple. Just by tasting a grapefruit or uh, feeling heat. It's just something like that. Like, you just take something relatively uncomfortable for me. I like cold. So then heat is like this. And then my mind wants to think about it. Why don't we think the air conditioning in this place? <laughs> or, I don't think I'll teach next summer. Or, I don't teach anymore at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all thought. Habit, isn't it? Ruminations on rumination. Maybe I go back and I complain to the monks. Oh, so much heat, so much heat, 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 heat. You want to do it, chemical? I don't like you either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thought. Yeah, blah, blah, right? And yet, in any given moment, I can feel heat and the mind is quiet. Yeah. Heat's got no problems. My mind's got the problem. Now, I can also then ruminate on I've got a heat problem, right? And I, I need therapy. I really, I, I got to. I have issues about heat, Andre. Can you help me? <laughs> and so on and so forth. But that's thought too, isn't it? But in any given moment, I can squeeze my hands and the sense of self is not there. It really is not there. It's just a bunch of thinking. I can do that anytime. Even even in like like really difficult emotions, say. If I'm, if I'm, if one is feeling strong grief, and and then the mind's just pouring out in grief, just you know the capacity to witness grief, 
as grief rather than a whole bunch of stories around what's grief really like there's a peacefulness behind the grief you know distracting the grief or or just thinking about it is not really knowing grief or being aware of grief sometimes goodwill doesn't come so easy right sometimes you feel you know you really do feel generous and you really don't want to hurt people but sometimes you're just so bloody minded you can't you can't do it you're so depressed or angry or whatever and what do you do then well then you need to have the intelligence to know that acceptance of even this bloody mindedness is goodwill yeah even the feeling of hating everyone when i know oh this is the feeling of hating everyone that acceptance and acknowledgement is goodwill. If you follow it and kill someone, then that's not goodwill. <laughs> but just the, just the capacity to recognize that even the most horrible, jealous thought you might have in the mind is just a jealous thought. And if you can witness to it like you can witness the heat, now this is a jealous thought, in the present moment, it's not a threat anymore. It doesn't threaten you, because it's not you, it's just an energy that comes up. And more and more, you can be even, have goodwill towards those really difficult states of mind, the fears and kind of haunting memories that we have, and you know, all that stuff that human beings have. Even that's okay, because now, your refuge is in this larger goodwill that it all belongs. But morally, I make a promise to you that I will not hurt you. I make a promise to you, I'll be faithful to you. So you, this is the way Buddhism works. It, it accepts every, you know, awareness accepts everything, but socially, we're social animals, we make these promises, promises of goodness and, and, and uh, impeccability. And then, and then you have a kind of freedom to experience whatever consciousness brings up, but socially, you have a structure and a, and a vehicle in which you can travel. It seems to me that if you have that in place, then however death comes, um, I think it'll be interesting. The dying won't be interesting. I mean, who wants to go through that, right? I don't, but it seems to be part of the curriculum. But just, just to, like, like to have a sense of, well, what, what happens to awareness? Don't you have that? I do. What, what do you think happens to the knowing? when the whole thing snuffs out. Right? And I think that curiosity would be, would be a good way to take the whole experience. Huh? It would be very, very interesting. Anyway, I'll leave that for your reflection. <laughs>